To our visitors, if you need to get up and leave, don't worry about it. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> Rob, uh, Blake had mentioned that we had a little bit changed our procedure on the giving. We have a box in the back now. And Robin, a few weeks ago, said everything that we look at online is very tacky. Would you, I'm going to commission you to build a simple box. And so I know Robin is a, an art type guy and he knows what commissioning is all about. So I, I appreciated that I was commissioned to build the box. And then a few days later, I was commissioned to answer a question. And with all this commissioning that's going on, I'm certainly glad that I haven't been commissioned to build a marble statue of David because this has been enough work on its own. But the question was, did God require a Sabbath day rest to be kept from the time of the expulsion from the garden until it was commanded in the law. And so I immediately Googled it, and that was my answer. So just go ahead, we're through. No, my first response was, well, I know what I've been taught. I know what I've been told, but I've never really studied it. So I will be glad to study and answer that question. So the first thing I did was I, I looked at the question and said, what kind of views are we going to have concerning this question. Of course, we have the Jewish view, which Nahum Sarna goes to Exodus 31:13 and says, all the generations will keep the Sabbath day, and that means all the way back to the creation and all the way until eternity. So the Jewish view is obviously going to be, yes, it was kept both before, during, and, well, we're still under the law according to them. But then the other view is, there's two other views, the Seventh-day Adventists obviously have the view that it, it is kept or was kept and should still be kept. And then a lot of people will call it the Christian Sabbath and say that Sunday is this Christian Sabbath and we are still keeping the Sabbath day, although we're keeping it on Sunday, which really doesn't make sense because the Seventh is the Seventh day of the week. But it's, this comes from a misunderstanding. I'll try to show that it's a misunderstanding of covenants and contracts and treaties from God. Usually what happens is these people go to Matthew 5.17 and will say, I didn't come to abolish the law. That's what it says. It still has to be here. And they will divide the law out into three portions, the ceremonial law, the sacrificial law, and the moral law, and say, we're still under the Ten Commandments. That's the moral law. And I'll try to show that that's not exactly what's happening there. But they never will compare... Matthew 5, 17 and 18, or seldom compare that to Luke 12, 50. And I'm not going to go into that. That's one way to look at that argument of we're still under the law and, and look at that on your own time. But I'm going to approach it from the idea that there is only one whole law and it's not divided out. We'll get to that later. But the, those who oppose the Sabbatarians, those who say we must meet on Sunday, usually come up with the argument of, Silence of the scripture. Well, it's just not mentioned. It can't be, so it's not there. And yes, I agree with the principle of silence of the scripture. If we're not told, we can't just make things up. But I think that's a very weak argument just to say it's not there. We're not really going to look for it because we know it's not there. And the other argument is the prolepsis argument that Moses wrote thousands of years later and he knew that the Sabbath was going to be sanctified, as it's mentioned in Genesis 2-3, because he was writing from the time after the law was established. So he knew this and just put it in there. And I'm not sure that that argument really applies to what we're talking about, and especially if we're not going to do the study in between to find out what really happened. So the question is, 
what is a Sabbath day's rest is the first thing we wanted to, to determine. So, of course, God rested on the seventh day. Genesis 3 verse 2 tells us that. And I looked at what was going on in antiquity back in history for the seventh day. Now, first of all, the Assyrians and the Egyptians had 10-day calendars, 10-day weeks in their calendars, so they didn't even have a significance of the seventh day. But the Babylonian and the Babylonian flood story, the Noah character from the Babylonian story, has a repeated seven-day cycle in that story. And in the Ugarit temple of Baal, that temple was purged with fire for six days, and then on the seventh day, the fire was put out. So there's some examples of seventh-day uh, metaphors in, in the old ancient antiquity stories. The seventh and fourteenth and twenty-first and twenty-eighth days were considered days that they were controlled by the evil spirits in some of these cultures. And even the seven times seven, the forty-ninth day after a new moon was considered the day of wrath. And you had to really be careful about what you were doing and what was going on on the day of wrath. But let's compare that to what Jehovah says. He says, stay in your tent, be still, and know that I am God. And I call this the uniqueness of Yahweh. That no matter what ancient story we have, when Jehovah tells that story, it's different. Creation stories of other cultures start with something. Jehovah starts with nothing. Flood stories are out of control, and a miracle happens that man survives. Jehovah is in control, and he's doing things to make his will happen. So it's completely different from the ancient stories. But what I want to do is look at Adam cultivated the garden. We know that. And God walked in the garden and rested in the garden. And other than sin and some descriptions, that's pretty much all we know about the garden. So I'm going to look at Enosh, Enoch, and Noah between the garden and the flood, and then we'll look at some other things with Abraham and the law. So Enosh, 426 of Genesis. In the days of Enosh, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And I think this might be the first repentance cycle. We're familiar with the repentance cycle. Israel sins... They repent, God forgives them, things get better, things are good, so they sin again, they repent, God forgives them, things get better. So that cycle happens again and again and again from the fall in the garden until the present day, and that will go on until the judgment day. So we have this cycle. And the importance of the theme or the cycle is if you can show that the Sabbath happened as a cycle, then you can pretty much conclude that we should be practicing seventh-day rest now. So you want to show this cycle the same way Jesus showed marriage as a cycle. In the beginning, God created man and woman, and therefore man and woman should be married, as he says in, nine, in Matthew 19. But what Enoch was, or Enosh was doing was looking for the rest that Adam had with God. When God rested on the seventh day, and God had walked with Adam in the cool of the evening, there was a rest that was a communication with God and Adam that Enosh was looking for. Noah was to bring rest. 
It says in 529 of Genesis that Noah was to bring rest or comfort. And we also know that Noah walked with God. So there's some comparison there between Noah and God. And also, Enoch walked with God, and then he was taken. So we're looking at these things as they occurred in the garden and comparing them to things that happened after. So God rested and God walked. So what does this mean and what does it mean to us? So first of all, Noah's name means rested. That the rest. And that is comparable to the word that's used in Exodus 20, and verse 11, when the Sabbath day is being established, and it says, on the seventh day, God rested. Noah and God rested are the same word. It's different from the words that's used in Genesis 2, 3. We'll go on to that in a minute. But that word means to remain quiet, to settle down, to have a confederation like a family or a tribal type camping. So it's a, a getting together. A, it's not, it's like shalom. Shalom has a lot of different meanings. It's hello, peace be with you. We're in the moment is actually a meaning of shalom. So it has a lot of different meanings. This word rest is not like we think of the word rest. To remain quiet, to settle down. And Noah was to give comfort, and that's to show pity or to show sorrow. So Noah, who was rest, was to show comfort, to give comfort, to console. And that was the consolation that Enosh was looking for, the rest that God had in the garden with man. And I said that when God rested, in 2-3 was a little bit different from the name of Noah, and it does imply the cessation of creation, that he had finished his work. But it also means to repose. And if you think about the diamond was reposed in the museum, that it's in the glass case and it's there for the viewers to be in awe of. So as God has finished his creation, then there's this idea that he's there with man, but he is so magnificent, so set aside but he's set there and the idea of tranquility and celebration wow we got to see the diamond or wow the child was born the celebration of birth is different from the celebration of a birthday hey let's have some cake well that's that's completely different from let's let's be fond of this event so we have that and then I think of Jesus reclining at the table. And even when the Pharisee wouldn't wash his feet and was trying to be dismissive of Jesus, there was still that calmness when Jesus reclined at the table. There's something about those passages that just brings a, a sense of, of good. And I'm not trying to show, or what I am trying to show, is that rest is not a cessation. It's not stopping. It's not the labor and the toil as we understand it, because if you think about the garden, yes, Adam was to cultivate, but it wasn't the toil that he had after the fall that from this day forward, you will, sweat by the sweat of your brow, eat. So I'm saying 
one more thing, I'm going to say that about five times, so about five more things I'm going to say, and then we'll move on to Abraham and the law. But God walked in the garden. And what does that mean? Well, that's different from what Enoch did. Those, those two words, Enoch walked with God and God walked in the garden, are two different ideas. And walking in the garden, yes, it means to walk, but it also has the connotation of carrying. So I walked with the basket, or God walked with Adam, that he carried Adam. It has the idea of causing, that God caused something to happen. When he walked with Adam, there was a, a fulfillment of some sort. And then it also has the idea of to flow and to follow. Now think about if you're following the stream, where it's going, then you're going to be going with it. You're going with the flow, you're going downhill. But the idea that comes with the walking that Enoch did before he was taken with God, it has the idea of walking, of course, but it's to exercise oneself or to exercise and to follow, to come along continually, that is to try to keep up with, so, sort of. But it also has the thought of being conversant. And I really like that word, conversant. That means we're communicating. So we're having this conversant walking with that we understand. I think of the men on the road to Emmaus and Jesus opened their eyes to know that he was what scripture was all about. So we have the idea of walking and exercising oneself, which is kind of going upstream against the flow, so to speak. So as God was with the flow when we followed him, Enoch was walking counterculture, so to speak, to be with God. And he was so good at it that he truly rested with God, and God took him. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that he took him without death. I want to mention one more walking and that's the book of Job. And the walking to and fro in the book of Job, if you're not familiar with that, read the first 10 chapters of the book of Job. And when you get to chapter eight, substitute your own name for Job because it says, have you considered my servant Job? He is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning from evil. And if we indeed are doing that, it's a good feeling to put our own name in there. And if we're not, it's a wake up which is what the scripture is supposed to be for. So Abraham, Abraham and the law. Abraham was told, go to a land that I will show you. He wasn't told, go to a land with milk and honey. He wasn't told to go to a land 700 miles away. He was told to go. And so he picked up and went. He left his family in his city, and he lived in a tent. He wandered in a tent. He walked with God with faith for where God was going to show him to go. And after obeying, it was counted as righteousness for him. But when we get past Abraham, past his death, God is telling Isaac, his son, stay. You need to stay. I know things, there's a famine and things are going on around you, but you stay. And you stay because your father Abraham obeyed me. 
This is in Genesis 6, 25, 26.5. Because Abraham obeyed me. He kept my commandments. He kept my statutes. He kept my laws. This is 600 years before the law of Moses that he's saying, Abraham kept my laws? And that leads me to conclude that there is something here. Is there a Sabbath that's included in this? Well, there's Melchizedek and the tithes that Abraham did. So we can draw a parallel there. We know that Job sacrificed and also Abraham sacrificed, obviously the story with Isaac. So there's something there. And we also know that Abel, his sacrifice was done in faith and that's why it was righteous. And we know from Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. So to sacrifice in faith, Abel had to have heard something from God. So we know these things. But to bind a theme like the Sabbath, I don't think there's enough information here to, to conclusively do that. We have so much more information about the Sabbath later on in the OT law, the Old Testament law. And we have so much information about worship in the New Testament that there's just not a good reason to bind that type of, of thing here. And Nehemiah compares, Nehemiah 9 compares Abraham and his promise to the promise of Moses and the prom or the law of Moses, excuse me. And so there's something different there. I don't think that that is a comparable thing. But what God is showing here is a big picture. There's more to it than just a Sabbath day. If you think about what's happening at creation, He's created a universe. It's huge. He's created the world and everything in it. That's huge. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And that's huge. It's not like he goes back on Monday morning, or excuse me, Sunday morning, and says, new universe. Well, he may have. I don't know. But it's not told us that, okay, we're going to rest on the seventh day, eighth day, we're going to create a new universe, and we're going to do the whole thing. That's not it at all. It's bigger than that. It has to be. So I want to look at what Paul says in Galatians 3.17. I think it's 18. I think I put a typo in my notes there. Yes, the law came 400 years later. For if the inheritance picking up in verse 18 of Galatians 3... For if the inheritance is based on law, then it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. The law is because they didn't get it. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 7, verse 7. If the law hadn't told me what covetousness was, I wouldn't know. I know I want things, but I wouldn't know it was wrong. I might want your stuff, but it, I wouldn't know it was wrong. Not to, So they gave, he gave me the law so I would know it was wrong. So what's happening here is when the law is given, 
the word Sabbath is completely different, I'll say that. But when the law is given, he's saying, you're not keeping the law, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a specific, little bitty, tightly wound up instruction so that you'll see what this is. So you'll see and know what my rest is. So you will live your life in this rest so that you will communicate, you will commune with me, you will be conversant with me in all of your life. So here it is. This is what it looks like. Here's how you do it. And the law was imperfect. What about the man who was gathering sticks? No, Numbers 15. The guy goes out and gathers sticks. And they say, well, is this breaking the law? Is he building a fire? And, of course, they go and ask God. And God said, yes, he's building a fire. Put him to death. But think about what he was doing. He's going out. He's gathering sticks. Gathering sticks is really not starting a fire. But he's taking the sticks back to his tent. And at 11.59.59, the second the Sabbath is over, he's striking that match. He's lighting that fire. He's going to get warm. See, I kept your Sabbath. Now I'm warm. I'm feeling good about myself. So it's the idea that he's pressing that to the very, very point of how close can I get to sin without actually being there. And I think that as much as, yes, the law is very specific and you have to do these things, the idea of the heart, that we are doing these things with our heart. Well, if he had gone out and picked up driftwood, said, hey, I can put this driftwood on the stack of firewood and I can look at that and remember God, until I can, after the Sabbath, start my fire and warm myself, that would have been completely different than the idea of, let's see how far we can press it. So what we have, and even back to the garden, the fruit is very specific. Do not eat that fruit. But the concept is, I've given you all this other stuff. There's any kind of tree that you want that you can eat. So if you listen to me and you trust me, you don't eat that one, one little bitty thing, all this big picture stuff is yours. So that's the idea of the law being the point little detail that points to the big picture. And that's why I think that the law is in the Sabbath and not, or the, the, the Sabbath is in the law and not in the creation story and after the law. So the idea with the law is God's going to give us the benefit of the doubt. I know, God, quoting God, so to speak, I know that you know what I mean. But you're telling, the, telling me that you don't. So I'll say you don't know what you mean. Here's your law. Now you know exactly what I mean. Keep the law. So the idea is, don't play dumb with God because we'll get more than we bargained for, whether it's a very specific law that we cannot possibly keep or it's a judgment day that's going to say, yes, every knee is going to bow to Jesus. The law was to force understanding and to drive the point home that the law cannot be separated. I've done a compilation of verses and this is to, to make the final point that we're not going to pull the law apart. But he says, 
mostly from Exodus, but it's going to finish in James. And then when we finish up with Hebrews, we'll have covered the whole Bible, which Richard didn't do. He only did one chapter uh, two weeks ago, but back and forth. Anyway, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you might keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So keep them and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statues and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So the Lord has commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he has commanded. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. This day the Lord commands you to do these statutes and ordinances, and you shall therefore be careful to do them with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You shall have today declared the Lord to be your God, and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and listen to his voice. The Lord today has declared you to be his people, a treasured possession, as he has promised you that you should keep all his commandments. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe all his commandments and do his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And he said to them, Take, your heart, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, and you shall command your sons to observe carefully even all the words of this law. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles on one point is guilty of all. So as far as dividing out one point, the moral law to make the Sabbath day binding on this day and age, I think it's fairly clear from Deuteronomy all the way over to the book of James the law comes as a complete block. You don't get to divide it out. We cannot use the table of contents, which is what the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, basically is, for a complete understanding. But based on what Paul has said in Galatians, and the evidence both before and after the law, I think we can conclude that the Sabbath day as it was prescribed in the law was not kept before, nor should it be kept after the law. It was and is something bigger. It is the rest that Adam had with God in the garden before sin. It's calm. It's collected. 
It's conversant. It's shalom. It's bigger than the word itself. The fruit of the garden is to do as I say, keep my commandments, as uh, the Sabbath day is to rest with God. It's bigger altogether. In Hebrews chapter 4, was read earlier, I started to read that from the NASB, and I shook my head and said, what in the world am I reading here? It just didn't seem to be a standalone passage. So I went to the New Living Translation to see if it would clarify a little bit, and I thought it had a good ring to it, a little more understandable in modern English. So God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news, God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us just as it was announced to them. That would be the Israelites who <coughs> fell in the wilderness. But it did them no good because they did not share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath they will never enter my place of rest. Even though this rest has been ready since the beginning of the world, we know it's ready because of the place in the scripture where it mentions the seventh day. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in other passages, God has said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is for the people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God through lack of faith. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. And if you think about Corinthians 2 and verse 6, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, today is the day of salvation. So today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because if Joshua had succeeded in giving them rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we shall fail. We are walking like Abraham by faith to a land, to a rest that we do not know. We are calling upon the name of the Lord just as Enosh did, seeking the rest that Adam had, that deep, tranquil, joyous, everlasting rest that the eye has not seen, that the ear has not heard, that has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those that love him. I absolutely want to leave you on a positive and joyous note but also a realistic note. And the Hebrew writer was telling his listeners of the goodness and the severity of God through the 95th Psalm. We're going to conclude with a reading of the 95th Psalm, followed by a song of encouragement. So be encouraged if you are playing dumb with God and not giving or having not given Him all of your heart and all of your soul 
all of your strength and all of your mind. Let's do have that conversation. Your eternal soul depends upon it. This is what Jesus Christ requires. And may the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, may Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit be with us as we press on seeking His kingdom and His rest. And I will conclude with the reading of the 95th Psalm, followed by one sentence from Hebrews. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyful to Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all the gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountain are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and they tried me, though they had seen my work for forty years, I loathed that generation. I said, These are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore my anger. They will not enter my rest. May the peace of the great shepherd equip you. Let us sing.